This is the Education Gadfly Show. Look it up, geography, folks. And if I, if I see a moose walk by while we're taping, I will let you know. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You heard the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming my special guest for this week, David Griffith. David, welcome hey, back buddy. to the show. Hey, <laughs> hey. hey. That is right. Every once in a while, we figure I should make you the special guest. This week, you get to say more than just a few words. That is really exciting, Mike. I just have to figure out something to say. All right. Well, good. You work on that. Now, we're super excited to talk. We has been a while since we've really dug in on this big question that is on everybody's mind, not just ours in Education Walk Land, but all over the country, which is, are schools going to reopen and should they? And I should say that, uh, hey, I'm taping this from beautiful Cacajo, Maine, uh, which, as I just told David and our producer, Tran, is north of Montreal. Look it up, geography, folks. And if I, if I see a moose walk by while we're taping, I will let you know. How's that sound? Sounds good. All right. Well, let's talk about schools reopening in Ed Reform Update. All right, David. Well, here we are in the middle of July, and suddenly the reopening debate is front page news. Uh, we've had the president weigh in on this, saying that kids should be back in school. We've had the Secretary of Education weigh in on this, including on the Sunday TV talk show, saying that, uh, yes, kids should be in school five days a week, preferably. There is, of course, much debate about this because as we've been talking about for months here on the show, it sure seemed like, uh, according to the CDC guidance uh, and other public health guidance, if you want to do social distancing on buses and classrooms, you couldn't get all the kids to school at the same time. Meanwhile, parents keep telling pollsters that they are afraid to send their kids back. And then the big meantime, the virus uh, is looking worse than ever in something like, what, 39 of the 50 states in the country. We now know that uh, LA, Unified, San Diego, Atlanta so far are not going to be opening in person when school starts. Oh my goodness, David, what is going on and what should these schools be doing? Yeah, it's been, um, I don't know, funny is the word uh, I would use for it, but it's its a dark brand of humor. I mean, first it was basically just us, right? And then like Matt Iglesias started blogging about it. And then all of a sudden, like what, two, two or three weeks ago, suddenly everybody remembered that we had kids and we had school. Mm -hmm. And uh, now it seems like, the, you know, we can't talk about anything else. If you ever doubted that our uh, political system has sort of short horizons, um, look no further than suddenly discovering that we'd have to send kids back to school six weeks before we have to do it. As recently as like three or four weeks ago, right? I was basically saying, you know, we got to get them back to school, right? Like, what are we, you know, why are we pussyfooting around here? We need to take a stand. Uh, this is crazy. Uh, yet I have to admit that the last two to three weeks um, have given me pause. It's one thing when the virus appears to be under control, but as long as it's spiraling out of control, it's hard to make the case for a full reopening when we're only mostly sure that kids don't really spread the virus. That's not the same thing as being 100% sure and the stakes are pretty high. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, look, I mean, I, I think in places where it is, you know, where we still feel like whatever this is, I guess it's still the first wave or the wave one and a half it has not peaked. It does yeah. seem like there's not much choice. I mean, how can you start when there's so much community spread? I mean, all of these plans from the public health people all along were, were saying, you know, assuming that we'd be out of you know, whatever you call it, phase one and into phases two or three or B or C, or I don't even know what the, what, what these systems are anymore. 
you know, in some ways that that's an easy call for schools to make is okay. I mean, they're under huge pressure from, from their teachers and other staff not to put them in jeopardy, right? Uh, kids may not be at much risk, but we just don't know that the adults in the system aren't at much risk from the kids or from other adults. It seems like they sure are, especially, hey, you know, schools are indoor places without great ventilation where people spend a lot of time in close proximity to one another. I mean, all of us have been reading for months now about how those are dangerous places. You know, you had a good idea uh, a moment ago before the show, which is to say, hey, you know, so in a place like L.A. or San Diego, why why even start the school year online? Why not just wait a month uh, and bump the whole school year calendar back a month? That makes a ton of sense. I mean, what do you think? Can you think of any downside? I mean, I guess you could make the case that the longer kids are out, the sort of more they forget what school even is. Right. And then then on the back end, I think potentially you could make the case that um, at least in D.C., it's sort of amazing the way school just stops being a thing in the last one or two weeks after testing and kids stop showing up. So, I, you know, I, I have some worries that kids wouldn't show up uh, in July if we held school in July. If the so, school year went from October 1st to sometime in July of 2021. Right. Yeah. So assuming, you know, you get a deal with the unions or or you can make it work logistically, having said all that, I still think there is a strong case, honestly, because I'm just that skeptical of online learning. And certainly in places that don't feel like they have their act together, where the community probably does not necessarily have broadband access or, or any kind of internet access, you know, whose interests are we putting first if... You know, if we if we open school online for a community that doesn't have internet access, instead of delaying, mm-hmm. uh, because you know we don't want to go to school in the summer or work in the summer. I don't know. I, I'm sure there are risks I'm not thinking of here, but I feel like you know it makes a difference to wait two or three weeks or four weeks or five weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should seriously consider it. And the situation is so fluid that I'll probably take that back next week. But I feel like there are places that should think about it. Yeah. Now, look, and just think about what what does it mean to start school online? At least last year, we had the benefit of, you know, having had teachers with these group of kids for three quarters of the year. You know, so now you're going to meet your kindergarten class over Zoom? Really? Is that going to go okay? I mean, uh, again, I mean, that's we already know that's going to happen for families that choose full-time online, which we'll see how many parent families that is i think that's going to be a surprisingly large number but for everybody else also yeah listen some teacher who has not necessarily met the parent is going to call some number that may not necessarily be the number where the kid is working right yeah. because yeah they don't have an internet you know an email address or the email address they have is wrong they may or may not get through and then a quarter of the kids may never i mean maybe i'm overplaying it but there are a lot of reasons to believe that some kids will just they're not going to show up yeah, um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna just lose them. All right, well, uh, turn the page on that just for a moment, David. All right, let's imagine in places where the virus is under control right now. The debate this last week, the president and at first Secretary DeVos were acting like there was this question of you know are the schools going to open and they some of these unions don't want the schools to open. The issue again a week ago felt like well it wasn't a matter of opening or not; it was a matter of opening at full capacity or not. And here, the administration has has leaned heavily on the advice from the Pediatricians Association, which did seem to imply to say, hey, it's so important to have kids at school every day if possible, that even if social distancing is not doable, 
do it anyways. Have them there anyways. And, uh, you know, it's probably a, a reasonable risk. I mean, how do you read that? I mean, I think they meant what they said. It's hard to know. I mean, th- there have been studies, right, in Finland and some other places where essentially they could not detect the effects of school openings on coronavirus case mm-hmm. rates, right? In, in other words, essentially, I think they looked at, you know, the number of cases, right? And they just couldn't tell that, that opening school made any difference. You know, we also seem to know from others' channels that certainly there are very, very few cases for young kids. And we think we know, although I don't think we're, I don't think we're quite as sure, that kids are more like sort of sinks than super spreaders, right? So we don't think that young kids, at least, are particularly likely to spread the virus, although I think there's more concern about teens. I do think, to be clear, that in places where it's under control, we need to at least be trying to, to open part-time, at the very least, mm-hmm. um, and sort of seeing what happens. I mean, that sounds bad, but if we don't try it at some point, we're never going to know what happens. Y- you have to try it to know. And so there's no such thing as zero risk. And, uh, you know, there was that great uh, study um, by Brian Gill, who's obviously a friend um, and is probably getting a lot of phone calls from reporters these days that was essentially making a case on sort of modeling grounds, right, that opening part-time could go a long ways towards slowing the spread, I think we're morally obligated to open at least two days a week in places where uh, the virus seems to be under control. Yep. I think that sounds well. And if that's where the debate could be, in my view, look, if the Secretary of Education came out and said, hey, look, this, this is we've got to do better than we did last spring, and we've got to get kids in school as much as we can, as safe as we can, then that seems fine. What really threw a lot of us for a loop is when she went after, for example, Fairfax County, Virginia, not so much for messing up last spring. I think that's legit. <laughs> but for saying that uh, two days a week going forward was the plan, when that seems to be the plan a lot of people are coming to the conclusion of is the right place to start. And hey, if if we can be more aggressive as the school year goes on, if we find out that, well, let's try three days a week, let's you know, maybe there's some places that have tried five and they've done okay, that'd be great to get there. But it, it sure seems like a head scratcher uh, to understand why somebody who supports uh, rethinking education and doing things differently would come out with this argument that uh, the only model that works is five days a week in schools, regardless of what's well, happening. Well, let me—I mean, let me say just this, Mike. Somehow, and it's almost impossible, but somehow, both for our, all of our collective safety and for the kids and for our teachers, we have to take the politics out of this. It is not helpful when the president of the United States threatens people and makes sort of blanket statements that seem to discount what are some pretty real risks. I just have to ask readers, right, and sort of appeal to people not to react to that, but to try to mm-hmm. stick to the science. And when it is safe to open schools, at least partly and potentially fully, that mm-hmm. we that we do that, even even if that's what you know the president called for six weeks ago, and you didn't like the way he called for it. You know, it's more important that we do the right thing. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah. Look, I think that's right. <laughs> if, maybe we look. Let, no, look. It, let, let's stay focused. If we maybe make it if for us, All for right. us wonks, right. we prefer if we say, look, this is a debate between the CDC and the AAP. You know that. Uh, yes. That, you know, both are trying to figure out the best they can how to weigh these trade-offs and have come and landed in different spots on something technical like social distancing. 
that may be actually a better place than, yes, making this about tribal politics in an election year. All right, David. Hey, great points. We should do this more often. This was fun. Who says we need a guest every week, Tran? Come on. I suspect all of our listeners would well, that is probably guest. true. But you know what? Our listeners are excited because it is now time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. How are things going there in Richmond? Oh, same old. It's hot. Mm. It's humid. Grass is dying, but we're good. I got to say, not up here in Kakajo, Maine, where the moose outnumber the people. (laughs) You know, uh, (laughs) my kids and my wife and our friends, they, they were all exploring yesterday and they did, in fact, see a moose in a bog. Super cool. Wow. Cool. Well, I'm here wonking it up on education policy. They're getting to see some moose. But hey, that's what it's all about. This is good. We'll not complain. So there you go. You gain perspective, Mike. Yes. Moose and moose are both plural. Is that right? Is it a moose and multiple moose are still moose? Uh, Moose. Yes, that sounds right. (laughs) Next time we have Trekker on, we'll ask him. How about that? All right, Amber, what you got for us this week? Oh, we got a new NBER study that examines, it's a little depressing, but it's actually got some good news in it. Examines whether mortality rates have risen disproportionately for the least educated Americans. And they're looking at mortality changes from 2001 through 2017. Their primary data come from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, something called a multiple cause of death file. They construct annual counts of deaths from all sources for specified age, education, sex, and race ethnicity groups. And then they use a couple other national data sources as well for population data and and some other things that they needed. So they construct deaths by education quartile, but that obviously means that the lower quartiles could be disproportionately populated by racial and ethnic groups that show below average education levels, such as Blacks and Hispanics, while other groups, whites and other races, would be overrepresented in the higher quartiles. So they also conduct a variety of robustness checks using race-specific thresholds to see how their results are impacted. And then they also try to address the fact that there may be increasing negative selection into the lowest schooling categories over time, resulting from increases in education attainment, whereby individuals in previous cohorts who would have failed to complete high school may now be high school graduates. They take all this into consideration. They analyze mortality rates at fixed percentiles of the distribution of educational attainment In short, their nationally representative estimates determine how mortality has changed over time across education courthouse. Mostly running linear regression models. And Amber, when when we're talking about education levels, are we just talking attainment, not achievement? Attainment. Attainment. That's right. Right. Attainment. Uh, The degrees that or diplomas you earned. Okay. Yep. Good. Their key finding is that it's really actually more about gender differences than anything else, which I think was a surprise to them. Finding that the reductions in mortality rates for females have generally increased in step with their education levels. That means with each higher quartile, uh, females had successively better mortality rates. Conversely, males in the three lowest education quartiles often had similar mortality rates. In keeping with this, schooling rose modestly over time for men, but more for women. For instance, average educational attainment for the 60 to 64 year olds, because they did this in five year increments of age. In the second to most educated quartile, you see increases by one year for men, but by 1.6 years for women. 
So we're just seeing more benefits to women. For both men and women, the average gap in mortality between the top 25% and the bottom 75% is growing. So you're seeing a gap again between the top 25, the bottom 75 getting wider. The lower education quartiles experienced larger mortality reductions than their higher educated counterpoints. This was kind of interesting. In many cases, those less educated groups were doing worse, but it was by such a small amount that they weren't significant, which again was was surprising. In fact, though, the greatest declines in mortality are concentrated among the most educated when they look at the middle, the groups in the middle, you're seeing similar mortality trends. So not as many differences in the middle groups as, as you're seeing at the most. Wait, let me try to make sure this is clear. So meaning that over time. So in the middle, we're not seeing the, the uh, longevity increasing in the same ways that we're seeing for the best educated people. Is that right? That's that, exactly that, right. That. Yep. And this is from 2001 through right. 2017. Okay. And then finally, they try to make sense of this this unfavorable mortality trend for men. So for men in the second and third education quartiles, it was it was looking pretty bad. And they say it could be consistent with recent evidence showing poor outcomes for persons with some college, but who didn't graduate. Then they cite a bunch of research that says there's growing evidence of declining job opportunities among moderately educated men. So that's what I've got. You're right. A little, a little bit depressing. You want to go first? Mike? <laughs> well, look, I mean, the context here is, of course, you know, this depressing news that came out a few years ago that that some researchers found that, uh, you know, mortality rates or how do we say this life life expectancy actually declined among some groups of Americans for the first time almost ever. Right? I, I think it was basically sort of middle aged, upper middle aged, white working class Americans, and you know, the speculation was a lot about these these quote deaths of despair, the suicides, the opioid epidemics, and all of that. And I guess, you know, you get through 2017, that would have picked up on some of those issues. I am glad that they tried to deal with the fact that these groups have changed over time. You know, I'm always curious about that when they, when I hear people say, oh, the white working class is not doing as well these days, you know, that group of people is much smaller than it used to be if you're defining it by education level, right? Because we're at the point now where I think the latest time I looked, 50% of young white Americans have a college degree, at least four-year degree, 50%, um, you know, which is much bigger than it used to be. So it's just a different group of people. You know, it's a, the white working class is literally shrinking. You've got to kind of control for that, right? Because you wouldn't be surprised if they're a smaller group that some of the more advantaged of the white working class in the past now is the part of the white college educated class. But uh, the gender differences are certainly interesting. Why is it that women have benefited more, it seems like, than men? Other than that, we men are a bunch of idiots and we make bad decisions uh, with our health. David? Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect segue for... <laughs> no, I, I th- talk about how my dumb specialty. We, talk about how dumb we guys are. I mean, yeah. uh, they, they break it down by sort of married versus unmarried because... Um, one thing I know, or I think I know, right, is that, you know, men benefit in terms of life expectancy um, from marriage. And I think women actually see a modest decline, which is uh, (laughs) really uh, too bad. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Obviously, some pretty big trends going on there that I think are difficult to account for. I mean, I, I, I guess... It, it is a little depressing. I mean, it makes me sort of think that education, I don't know, I, I personally like to think of education as um, like a force multiplier, right? Inherently sort of socializing, democratizing, and kind of helping people, you know, uh, make sense of the information they receive, make good choices, etc. But, you know, it's it's clearly being overtaken by some pretty big tides here, right? Or else, 
Either that or degrees just aren't picking up on much. The big picture, it doesn't seem like education is making that big a difference mm, for the majority of people. looking at it. <laughs> Are we allowed to say that on an education podcast? Well, at least, look, not for everything, but when it comes to, you know, when it comes to this particular well, outcome, top, right? It, it just like doesn't it. seem to Especially be translating. Especially for women, right? All right, the top 25%, it was, I mean, we're, right. we're seeing the growing gap between the top 25% yeah. and the yeah. bottom I mean, look, 75%. And, and, and the question is... Okay, all right. I, look, I'm it's, sorry, it's I, better, I mean, it seems clear that in general, it's better to be better educated in America, which we, you know, I think the authors of the study, it sounds like, think that translates into being richer and having better career opportunities, which is probably usually true, right? But I think David makes a good point that it... That translates into other things that matter also, like being more likely to be married, you know? And so all these things kind of go together, right? If, if you are now a man who doesn't have a high level of edu education, struggles to get a decent job or stable employment, you're also probably struggling to get married or stay married. You know, all of these things conspire uh, to make life tough. You know? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, certainly an argument that says, look, it, go back to the success sequence, right? Get your education get a good job, get married, start a family. I mean, that these things still, all of that works for young people and kids. It also maybe works for longevity and the rest, right? And, uh, you know, the tough question for our society or any society is for people who, for one reason or another, struggle to, to follow that sequence, you know, how can we help them do better? So that, that'll be a topic we can pick up, you know, next time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really quick. Yeah, I feel, well, look, the causal arrows are pointing in all sorts of directions here. I know they controlled for a lot of things, but, um, you know, I, I just, I would be very cautious, I guess, maybe I should be more cautious before dismissing education, but I think, I think we should be very there is this question about if you are better educated, do you, for example, take more seriously, uh, the advice to not smoke, uh, you know, well, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, and it may also be that the, that your underlying personality or character traits or whatever you want to call it, that it makes you better at school, you know, delaying gratification, buckling down, working hard, et cetera, et cetera, makes it more likely for you to choose not to pick up smoking or to quit smoking if you started smoking, right? I mean, so that, yeah, it's hard to untangle all these things, right? What is malleable about the human condition and what is not? Again, these are these are big questions that uh, people have have wrestled with forever. All right. Well, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.